Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Hello. How's it going? Great. Doing good. How are you? Good. We finally, finally connected. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, no problem at all. Say, I really enjoyed your book on John D. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Actually, uh, I quote a portion of it in my second book, Angels in Vermilion. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed it, where you said something to the tune of how if, if anyone would have had access to entheogens, surely the alchemists of the time would have yeah i'm pretty sure people have been getting blasted for a long time (laughs) we are we are in agreement on that i don't think we i don't think that was invented in the 60s (laughs) absolutely so let's just get it let's just get into it i'm i'm excited about this about this because your book theurgy theory and practice the mysteries of the ascent to the divine is on a topic of great importance or excuse me great interest to me but which I don't know a whole lot about, which is the Chaldean oracles. And my understanding is that they are, you know, perhaps one of, if not the sources for the Western esoteric tradition. So let's just, let's just dive into it. Why don't you kind of tell us a bit about your book and kind of your, your overall thesis? Sure. When I, when I decided to write, to write the book, I had returned to the Neoplatonists in an attempt to get a better idea <clears throat> about what was meant by the soul. You know, we take it for granted. We have this soul that's allegedly survives death. And I really wanted to understand what, for example, the church fathers meant when they said these things, what certain of the saints and scriptures of various cultures. So I went back to the Neoplatonists and I immediately ran into theurgy. And with the, when looking at the, theory and the practice laid out for theurgy. The the theory is easy enough to find. The clearest example shows up in Porphyry and his On the Cave of the Nymphs, where he gives a model of the universe for theurgic practice and explains what the process is, soul ascent, etc. So just real quick, quickly define theurgy for people who haven't heard the term. Theurgy is a, a combination of two Greek words that mean to work 
and divinity or with the gods. So it could be to work with the gods or the work of the gods. Dionysius, the Areopagite, he uses it in terms of the work of God, for example, Christ's miracles. And the 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 goal of theurgy is ultimately henosis or what the Christians call theosis to, to un- unite with the divine. So it's 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 essentially magic is the spiritual path of uniting with God. I think rather than getting stuff. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that. But even when we look at, for example, Yomblichus, he goes at great lengths to separate theurgy from thaumaturgy, magia, goetia. And with the magia, it seems like his impression of what magic meant was sort of knowing how to do things, whether it be illusion, how to produce an illusion like charlatry, jugglery for a group of people, or how to construct something magical, perhaps like a talisman. But he felt theurgy was different from this. But I think in the broader sense, I do think that's a a just description. Okay. Okay. Magic. Awesome. And the the means by which they acquired this experience is what was so elusive. And I only discovered it by chance reading Proclus's commentary on Plato's Republic. And in there, he gives sort of an esoteric commentary on Homer. And that's where he provides the, the praxis of it. So when I backed up and looked at what they were saying, I just found it really fascinating that theurgy, which isn't attested in literature until the second century AD, that word doesn't exist, allegedly or apparently, prior to its use in the Chaldean oracles, and yet the very people who are practicing this projected into Homer, say that they're getting it, both the theory and the practice are based on an esoteric interpretation of something in Homer. So that the real thesis of it was was how the why how and why they're doing this. What's the why are they projecting it into Homer? Can we take them at their word, or is this just a matter of them finding something that isn't there? But in the in the end, I was my final conclusion is that they they definitely have reason to be projecting it into Homer because some of these sections of his works are so strange. When you look at that that scene of, of Odysseus entering the the port of Fortius and going into that cave, the way Homer describes that cave describe is, describe that scene describe for because I I don't that doesn't immediately I, it's been a while so. Sure. So Odysseus, <clears throat> he sails into the port of Fortius <clears throat> and finds this cave. And this cave has two entrances. And Homer says one entrance is for man, for mortals. The other entrance is for immortals, perhaps gods, heroes. He doesn't explain what he means by that. So these two entrances. And then the cave belonged to this, this group of these these spirits, these naiads, which we might think of in terms of maybe divas in Eastern terms. And they constructed this cave to be, according to this, to be a reflection of the physical universe. And within the cave, there are craters, craters, bowl-shaped impressions in the ground. And there are vases that are used specifically in Greek religion for giving offerings to the dead for pouring out libations and the the two entrances porphyry is the one who says this 
this is reflects the universe that those two entrances are in fact the points at which the ecliptic the wheel of the zodiac intersects with the milky way <clears throat> now this is significant because ever since excuse me ever since pythagorean groups had been emerging post pythagorean philosophers there had been this notion that souls prior to incarnation and after incarnation circle the milky way they just kind of orbit in the milky way <clears throat> so what right. these entrances become are the entrance for mortals is the way that souls enter a round of incarnation and the entrance for immortals is where they leave a round of incarnation and transcend the domain interesting of, of interesting the existence of men interesting so so specifically what time period do the the so oh, i'm actually looking at, at the book so second century chaldean oracles are, are the second century and my here's my my working knowledge of the chaldean oracles you know mickey Mel, mickey pellerano talks about them a lot he, he when he, he did a course on magic.me called the astrology of wealth he talks a lot about that and he explains that the order of the planets and of the zodiac you know and specifically the order that was put into the tree of life that we've been all you know western practitioners all work off is from the is the chaldean order it's from the chaldean or oracles but also there's something that you know obviously the one line that has always stuck with me is god is he with a spiral force from the chaldean oracles and i'd love to talk about that and what you think that means because that is a that is a that is a comment that feels so intuitively deep and true and i i have thought about for so long that i'd love to hear your take on it that verse in particular is what was placed at the beginning of the oracles when they it believed they were the writings of zoroaster They'll call, you'll see the texts that it appears in as the the chaldean oracles of zoroaster and it's disputed whether or not that's an actual fragment. When you see it put together by later scholars, like, for example, Ruth Majersik, she doesn't place it at the head of it, and its its legitimacy is doubted. But I don't think that detracts from the weight of that. Like you say, it, it seems to carry such a heavy weight. And I think there's even a, a, a portion in there where it says that that deity has a, the head of a hawk, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Person. Thank you for reminding me because because it 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 of course sounds like Horus, right? From right. The, from as in Aeon of Horus, and it also looks, I, you know, reminds me of, you know, those uh, what are like Austin Spare used to love like those kind of drawings of winged angels holding lightning bolts with hawk heads that look like they're from the ancient middle east or something like that i'm not sure if right, i'm describing yeah. that well so talk why why hawk head talk about and this is okay so we're talking about what second century greece is that correct okay so was was that were they just talking about the egyptian gods or what was going on there that's certainly part of it because at this period up into alexandria there's a lot of synthesis taking place. And even when the theurgists are discussing what theurgy is, like for example, in Iambicus and his De Mysterious, he relates it specifically to the Egyptians and the Chaldeans, that what they're doing is the best examples. Now, he, he extends that to other religions like Judaism, he says is a legitimate theurgic religion. But yes, all of these things are mixing from these cultures to create 
a very different picture than what we would call just Greek religion. Yeah, that's um, that's something that I've really kind of started to get a grasp on and just in the last 10 years or so where it's like, you know, like when we're in school, they're like, here's Greek mythology, here's Egyptian culture. But you actually look and it's like, no, I mean, it's basically like, you know, the equivalent, they were all trading. So it's like the equivalent of the internet where they're all swapping ideas and gods go between these cultures. And, and a lot of it is, and, and, and it's so inspiring in a way because it, it was such an, you know, it gives you the sense of religious plurality and tolerance before people started, you know, going jihading against each other or whatever. So, um, mm-hmm. but maybe, maybe that, may, that may or not be historically accurate. Maybe they were doing that. I don't know, but it's, it, it's all, always fascinating. Some, there were some competing factions. You know, there was some struggle over the model that we would use to explain why and how things take place. But even up into late antiquity with the philosopher Proclus, who provides us with the practice of what theurgy looks like. At his school, it, they, had, they had statues of, of gods from all these different cultures. And he taught his students, and he himself went out of his way to revere every god from every culture that he was aware of. And I think the only culture that that this wasn't extended to was Christianity, which they saw as something invading. Okay, their- okay, let's let's zero in on that. Okay, so so first of all, what what you know, we're talking what one hundreds A.D. Proclus is fourth century. Fourth, okay, so three so like three fifty A.D. or something like that. Okay, so why did they see Christianity as an invading religion? Well, because it breaks a lot of their rules that. That they believe the universe operates under. For instance, it was seen by some Neoplatonists as offensive, the, uh, the notion that the noose, because Christ in this model and in the early Christian, Christian model, Christ is part of the hypostases, which is sort of the, the early version of where the Holy Trinity comes from. And these, these hypostases, there's the monad, we can see it kind of like a pyramid, a hierarchy, the monad at the top, which in, is the the one, the pege or the source. After this is noose, mind or intellect, and and I mean that in the Buddhist sense of mind, big mind. And then following that is suke or soul, the world soul, the anima mundi, and the, so these would correspond to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, essentially. Well, that the noose is also recognized as the demiurge. And the demiurge is, just means builder or craftsman. So he's the one responsible for taking the forms and organizing them into this world we experience now. And this was okay. Important. And you're, you're saying so this concept of the demiurge comes from Greece, or you're talking it's coming from Greek culture and not from Gnosticism. Not, we're not talking Gnosticism. No, no, not yet. Okay, mm-hmm. so was this was just like a common idea at the time? Is that what's going on with the Platonists? It was, especially by the time of the middle Platonists, this was okay. firmly in place. But they didn't see, the, so they didn't see the Demiurge as a negative figure or anything like that. No, that, that comes from the Gnostics. So the Gnostics are Christians, but they've encountered Plato, and they recognize Plato as just as much of a revelation as they did Moses. Well, they have this picture of Plato with this Demiurge, and they also have to rectify this with their own perception of their own scriptures. And, and in Genesis, in chapter one, it says that man was created by Elohim, 
and Elohim is which the is name plural, which is plural, plural yes, pl yes, feminine yes, plural, yes, yeah. yeah. It's interesting when you read things in the original language, it's That's totally right. different, yeah. So, yeah. so, a feminine plural of, of gods or goddesses creates man as a spiritual hermaphroditic being, and in the King James Bible, this is just translated as God. Well, by the time we get to chapter two, it's now Lord God, not God. But the word used trans, that's translated as Lord God is tetragrammaton, yod heh vau heh. Mm -hmm. And this God, it says, creates man a second time, but creates him of the dust of the ground and then separates female out of him, pulls Eve out of Adam. So for the Gnostics who have who've got this new Platonic vocabulary, looking back at these Jewish scriptures, they're saying, wait a minute, number one, where did Elohim go? You know, and why did this Yahweh character trap that spiritual hermaphroditic being in matter, created him of the dust of the ground, and then separated the feminine out of him, which for some of them, that was the soul, separated the soul and the body, you know, and put right. them at, at Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and we're still, we're still, we're still coping with this in 2024 and trying That's to right. figure this. Yeah. I mean, it, this is, this, this is like, uh, I, I love relating as, you know, esoteric concepts can get so so you know cool and arcane but it's like I, I love bringing relating to them to what is directly in front in front of people's faces you know like it says in that first chapter of the bible like the something like man and woman will bite each other's heels or something, you know, like uh whatever that is um, they're at odds with each other and and they're at odds with nature they become they're at odds with with animals plants you know the thorns so, it sets sets everything out of this perfect harmony right um, so am I correct in understanding that, or I will say, or at least appears to, right? Because I, at least Crowley was of the opinion that it is actually, all of this was perfect and necessary for, for creation or, or anyways, but we don't need to get into that. The, but am I correct in understanding that, let me see if I have this right. Cause I probably don't. The Gnostics were encountered Plato. And then after reading Plato looked at the original hebrew scriptures and said wait a second what the hell is this is that correct right because the, the okay. demiurge is separate from the one so even yeah. though the hypostases are considered as above being it, it's imperative that there be a that god be transcendent and imminent well how do we maintain that that means we need at least two parties one party to be transcendent and the other part to actually be here create do so that's so the demiurge, the noose, became that imminent part of creation. And for the Christians, it incarnates in the in the body of a man. That was repugnant to the Neoplatonists, especially the Plotinian variety, like Porphyry, who saw matter and incarnation as dirty and evil. And, and when Plotinus was head of the academy, so what I was saying, it when Plotinus was head of the academy, we know from Porphyry's biography of Plotinus, that there were Gnostics present in that academy, in the Platonic Academy, and they were circulating certain texts that he names in this biography. Well, all we had of those texts were those names until 1945, when the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered. And all of a sudden, we see that there are texts attached to these names. These are real texts. And Plotinus, he, while he wrote a chapter in his Enneads called Against the Gnostics, which which all he's what he's against is the notion of the demiurge being evil, because he's not extending this picture 
Plato paints in the Timaeus to Genesis. He's just worried about Timaeus. This sounds like, as I'm hearing it, it sounds like maybe there was rivalry between just different groups. It's like, hey, if you're, you know, like you're calling our God evil, like F you basically. Like, that, <laughs> yeah. like, like basically this sounds like there may have been some political stuff going on here as well. Because Absolutely was. just from observing religions now, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A and even though Plotinus writes that chapter against the Gnostics, there's a, a great book by Alexander Mazur, who passed away shortly after he wrote this book, but it's it's called The Platonizing Tendencies of the Sethian Gnostic, something to that. It's a big title, but it's his only book, so you can find it at M-A-Z-U-R. But in it, he, he points out that what Plotinus's big innovation to Platonism was, was that his mode of uniting with the one, what later became called theurgy, technically should be a reversal of cosmogony. So if we're going back to the one, we're in, in effect reversing creation and absorbing, reintegrating everything back into the one. Well, when you follow his process on the return, you run into a discrepancy that can only be explained with recourse to those Gnostic texts. So it's clear that those Gnostics influenced his practice, even if in theory he he outright rejected them. Interesting. Why why were the Gnostics so? Con I mean, why were they so hated? You know, I even I've even talked to like Christian scholars today who who still you know like if I bring up the Gnostics, we'll say things like, "Well, they were they were good people, but totally deluded." You know, and and of course their their stuff was taken out. But why why what was it about them? Maybe they just had bad manners. I don't know. But what was it about them that people didn't like? I think there's a, probably a couple of good reasons we can name. One is many of the Gnostic sects were dualists. And just like in the Zoroastrian religion, they propose a, a good deity and a bad deity that are eternally at odds. Whereas in Platonism, there is no bad deity. There's the one, and there's privation of the one, which is the source of evil. So you can, it's like stepping outside of the. Sh a sun ray, in, in effect. If you don't want to participate in the one, then you can be in, in a state of privation, and, and then evil can come in. So there's no two eternally powerful things that battle. So that's one thing that I think is clearly at odds. Another is that what we call the Gnostics retained some of the practices of the early Christians that the later Christians would rather forget. What were, what we were those? What were those? Well, for example, the first Christianity in the beginning was a, a secret society. We didn't know what they were doing. The first person to come out and say, here's what the Christians are doing, was a, a philosopher named Celsus, a Platonist. And in it, he explains that, <clears throat> that they have a ritual where they cover their bodies in this ointment, likely a hallucinogenic ointment, called they call it the white unguent of the tree of life. And this is this is modern chrismation, but this is a hallucinogenic version. Okay. And afterwards, they the soul leaves the body. They that sounds like well, that sounds heaven. like a potentially detura or henbane or something like that. It sounds that, like yeah. a flying ointment, okay. doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And they travel through the seven heavens, and they meet seven successive archons. Now they're not the big bad evil archons that we get in later Gnosticism. They're just kind of guardians of those levels of heaven, and they have passwords, ciphers, which are 
dice that they show to them at certain numbers that that gets them past each of these levels. Wait, wait, wait. You you play Dungeons and Dragons with the Archons to get out of yeah. existence? That's fucking awesome. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's, wait, what's the, what happens with the dice? The, they are, they, they call them ciphers, but they're essentially dice. And the, each, each Archon has his own number. And if you'd show him the wrong number on the dice, you don't get past that level. You have to roll. You have to roll to escape reality. Yes. Critical fail. <laughs> yes. That is yes. so funny. Um, and, and, and Origen, the early Christian, he wrote a very lengthy rebuttal of Celsus's text and says, no, those people you're describing aren't Christians. Those are Orphics. And that's where we get that term Orphic. He says, these early Christians were Orphics. They're Gnostics. We're real Christians. But then he would go on to to call himself and Clement of Alexandria, they would refer to themselves as Gnosticoi, you know, the ones who know. So they, they're accusing people of being Gnostics. They're claiming to be Gnostics. And when he, when he attacks each of these points that Celsus makes, he doesn't attack the ointment. He doesn't rebut the ascent through heavens. What he takes issue with is that Celsus got the levels of heaven out of order, you know, so and, and not saying we're not doing that. He almost admits that they are doing that. You see, otherwise he, he would have the books. It's eight books long. It seems like he would have taken some time to reject the notion of a hallucinogenic ointment and a flight through the heavens. But he doesn't. He just says, no, you got your heavens out of order. Which was the real mystery, you know? We get the the Ptolemaic order from Luna to Saturn, and when the ascent happens, the planets are in this odd arrangement. For one, there's no mention of the sun, and for two, there's two Saturns. And the scholars struggled with this forever and thought, "Is this just are they are they stupid? You know, is this a blind? What's going on?" It wasn't until April DeConnick spelled it out in, in this paper she published called The Road for the Soul is Through the Planets, where she explains that what they're doing is based on Porphyry's model of this cave. So these two points of intersection, the real zodiac signs they intersect at are Scorpio and Taurus. But Porphyry's a Hellenistic philosopher. He's a tropical astrologer. So he's what he's basing it on is something called the Thema Mundi which is an early chart for basically the birth of the universe. And on based on this model, and he uses this model because it so closely teaches all of the Ptolemaic orders, he places these gates in Cancer and Capricorn, which seems like it would be Ptolemaic, right? We, the, the gate for humans where we incarnate is at the lowest level, at the, the gate of the moon. He calls it the gate of the moon. The other gate, the gate of Saturn, which is at the top of that hierarchy, is where we leave an incarnation and, and go out. I got a question for you real quick. And this is just sure. pure, purely intuitive. Are the Archons the planets? I don't think they're the planets themselves. They could be. We do see a lot of tendency for the Christians to take pagan deities and recast them as lesser spirits and demons even we see this today even in the grimoires but i think it's more likely that they would be what we would call the planetary intelligences okay so yeah 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 okay so so yes right like not the actual physical planet but the planetary intelligence yes okay yes so I think that's perfect i will cite my source for this 
idea. It was being blasted out of my fucking skull on ketamine at Burning Man in 2008. So I was right. <laughs> Excellent. Right. The Excellent. voice was correct. Yeah. Thank God for ketamine. <laughs> Indeed. Amazing. Uh, yeah, because I just had this sense. I was like looking up at the sky and I was, it was night. I was looking at the planets and I was like, what if like, if this universe really is an illusion, what if those are the jailers? Like we're looking at that up and it's like, oh, the archons? Well, maybe they're right in front of your face. Because if you think about it, if you accept the premise of astrology, well, and certainly scientifically, at least the moon, these things are influ- if these things are influencing and controlling us all the time, my response is not, oh, well, I should learn astrology. My response is, let's fucking kill the planets. Uh, obviously, that's exaggerated. That was, that's but Zosimos how do we get free? Right? Zosimos, the first alchemist, theurgy already exists. And theurgy is, it was the theory and practice of theurgy that led to alchemy. And in the earliest alchemy, Zosimos is clear. The prima materia is acacia. It's a stone they're extracting from acacia. The lapis philosophorum comes from acacia. Well, most species of acacia possess dimethyltryptamine in them. And there's a lot of yeah, yeah, evidence yeah. that suggests this is what they're doing. And when he tells his student, Theosabia, she's learning astrology from the Egyptian priesthood. He tells her, you have to stop using astrology. He says that's how that's how you enmesh yourself further in fate. Those yeah, things. I, I I love I love your site. Yeah, I I agree with that because that has always been my take on it. It's like you know somebody pointed out to me, you know the 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 fool the fool reads their destiny in the stars. The wise man rules his stars. And you get that in the Chaldean oracles too. That okay. once once you connect with your higher daemon, once you connect with these gods. You're no longer subject to fate. And that, that's that's part and partial for what the whole experience of the Ogdoad is, entering the Pleroma. Once you get in that region, which in the cosmos is the region beyond Saturn, those planets don't affect you. You're not subject to fate. And so that's a flight of consciousness rather than the body? Like your right. consciousness ascends past the point where the planets affect it? That's right. Right on, man. Okay, because this is something that I've been like in, intuiting, intuitively thinking about for for quite a while. Fascinating, and you're, so you're backing, you're backing that up. Okay, and so that 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 was so my un, my my unverified personal gnosis matches with his. Uh, that's how you know it's real, right? And it's almost my, always the case. Yeah, it's like you have the experience, and then like you Wikipedia it, and it's like Jesus fuck. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all we're all we're doing is looking for confirmation in the outside for. What we really already know, but mm. don't really want to admit to ourselves. Interesting. What else do we not want to admit to ourselves? I got a list. I can pull pull it up. Yeah, oh. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are plenty of things. You know that we we get intuitions all the time about the way fate works and little little you know, messages, little kisses from our soul that tells us what to do and what not to do. And I think if most of us were honest with ourselves, we would admit that most of why we do things is irrational. We can try and make sense of it later, but everything we're doing, if we're honest, is based on irrational hopes and wishes and fears, you know. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is I, my take on this has always been that, you know, when you when 
you read people like Gurdjieff saying like, man is asleep and a robot and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, machine. is a machine. My, my, you know, I, I had a much more literal take on that or I was like, whoa, what the hell when I read that when I was younger. But now I think he's, my, my, I think that he's basically saying the same thing that the Buddhists are, which is we are, uh, and frankly, actually Scientology, which is that almost everything we do is reactive. That's we're, right. we're reaction I, we're reaction machines we don't initiate people tend not to initiate and then i.e initiate action we're just reacting to our stimulus constantly and thinking that that's our personality i think that's 100 correct it's very and rare that, that's actually that someone scary. acts it's very rare that someone acts and doesn't react and i and that's really the big revelation in my opinion with with crowley's work for instance He's telling you to do, yes. you know, don't just be subject to these forces, get out and f- figure out what you really want to do and make sure, because there are consequences with any choice we make, but just do it. Right. You know, in Pascal Beverly, yeah, yeah. he, he would say, he, try his motto, try, you know, is it, similar, but get out and, and at least try. Don't just react, wait for something to fall in your, in your lap. Yeah. yeah. I think that. Wow. Yeah, I, I think I've always thought that the, the night and I, um, I, I was thinking it, and then you just said it. I've always thought the Nike slogan, just do it is like <clears throat> the true, most precise summation of the lemma. And it's not Cro- Crowley was just like running it. It's like he, he, he got it almost there, but just do it is the perfect, like, yeah. uh, and when, you think uh, summation. Who, when you think about who Nike was, hmm. it, it's all the more meaningful. Oh, we will talk uh, about that Nike, the, the goddess. Yeah, the goddess. That, so, so talk about that. Talk about that. Well, it's Nike is usually seen in the company of Minerva or Athena, which is the, she's a goddess of wisdom. She's also a goddess of war. So the implication is, you know, that, that her wisdom is the wisdom of, of conquering. And she's always accompanied by Nike, by victory, because she doesn't fail with her wisdom. She's, she's infallible. We recently got to we met author Jamie Paul Lamb, who's someone you might want to talk to in the future. He's a brilliant astrologer and magician. Never heard um, of him, but okay. I'll take it. Yeah, check, check him what, out. What was L-A-M-B. his name? Jamie Paul Lamb. Okay. He met us. He's from Arizona, but he met us at the Parthenon in, in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a, a one-for-one reproduction. It is astounding. Oh, well, I didn't know that was a thing. I got to take some notes. Yes. And, oh, and the statue of Minerva is several stories tall and she's got nike she's holding nike in her hand you can see the gorgon head as her brooch and the shield all the detail it's a that's, that's wild i've never heard of that apparently there's also a a, rep, a full replica of stonehenge in texas i just found out about this as well i didn't know that yeah 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 incredible okay super cool let's go back to christianity because i i, I didn't want to lose the thread of Genesis and Elohim and and we got on Gnosticism, but you know, even as just just if you are a rational person and you as an adult you read Genesis, it's just like, what the hell is this? It's you know, at least in the King James translation, which I love the King James by the original King James Bible, you know, it, it's really clear that you know, God creates humanity, but then it gets spiteful, angry. It's just like temper tantruming all over the place. He makes them. He's like, now I don't like you. I'm going to kill you all with the flood. And then like Noah uh, kills all these sacrifices, all these animals after getting off the ark. 
And God's like, okay, you killed all these animals for me. I guess I like you. Well, this sounds like some type of like a Vudan Loa or something, yeah. right? It That's doesn't, that, that, whatever that is, that ain't ultimate reality. That's a midway creature, as Timothy Wiley would say. That's a, that's a spirit. That's a, that's a, that's a, and that's one of the lower problems entity. The, Gnostics, the Gnostics were running into from chapter two on. You know, there, there's evidence that chapter one and chapter two are two different creation stories that are, are merged. I've never heard it, that. It, 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 apparently, it's a, there's a different author or set of authors for chapter one and chapter two, which is one reason the God name changes. It's why there's two creations of Adam, of the first man. You know, but for the Gnostics, this is scripture. And they need to rectify it. They need to make sense of it. Yeah. But, but, and this is, and I will say like, you know, that means now too, as we are all Gnostics, we are all trying, still trying to rectify and figure, you know, understand all of what the fuck all this is. So yeah. That's right. Yeah. And the, 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 even though Kabbalah is relatively late in terms of the age of the Jewish people and that, that tribal movement, I do like their, their, teaching that's very similar to some ideas you encounter in Buddhism that Genesis isn't somewhere in the distant past. It's, it's eternal. It's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And you get the same thing in Orthodox Christianity with yes. the notion that Christ, it says in Revelation, that he, he was crucified from the, the beginning of time. Uh, yes. You know, that, that's an eternal... It's the crucifixion <laughs> is now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we're, the messianic we're, age we're is the, now. And, and yes. Phil, that's the Philip K. Dick's whole thing where we're like, it, the Roman Empire is trying to hypnotize us that it didn't happen. Right. You know, we're in the fourth <laughs> century. We did not at all pass the fourth century. Interesting. Okay. But then let's go back. Okay. So, well, let, then let's take on this idea that it wasn't a, a single being, it was a plurality, it was an Elohim. And then, of course, you then you really have to, in my opinion, at least, really have to steer away from like at that point, the ancient aliens crowd who will be like, that oh, means man. that aliens create us. It's like that is way, way too literal. You know, it's no, like, yeah, <laughs> don't, don't make me go in that corner, please. Yeah, I don't, yeah, me neither. I, it's, yeah. But talk, so, so what, what's that? I mean, like, okay, so what, what does that mean? Is that angels or does it mean something else? What, what is that? And of course, there's Gnostic scriptures that talk about races of creator beings, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, like uh, the hypostasis well, of the archons or maybe some of the other ones. Well, when all of those seem to be planetary, whenever you place them against, because nothing happens in a vacuum, you know, and, and with the Gnostic reading of Genesis, the, the consequence of seeing those as two creators and two creations of man, one spiritual and hermaphroditic, one in matter and separate, the consequence becomes, well, then what is the role of the serpent? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? And in this model, in the Gnostic model, he becomes the essential, the, the emissary of the Elohim coming in to tell man, no, you need to take this, this drug. You need to eat from this tree because it will make you open your eyes and realize that you just as much as Yahweh descend from the Elohim, from the highest God, you know, and, and then, then that scene itself becomes a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. The serpent on the tree is Christ on the cross. Hmm. And, and in the book works of the, the saints like Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, you get lots of foreshadowings and some of them aren't in the Bible. Like in, in Clement of Alexandria, he says, when, Odysseus ties himself to the mast of his boat. They're sailing through where the sirens 
are. And these sirens, their song calls men to their death. Well, yeah. All of his people on his boat, they plug their ears with wax so that they can't hear the song. Odysseus wants to hear it, but not respond to it. So he gets tied to the mast. And for Clement, this was a foreshadowing of Christ's crucifixion. And Gregory of Nyssa, in the life of Moses, when the Israelites discover the promised land and they come back with a pole over their shoulder carrying enormous grapes, big bunch of grapes back with them, that is the wine, that's the blood, that is Christ on the cross, foreshadowed in this. And for the Gnostics, the serpent on the tree becomes a foreshadowing. And you even get this, the proof, you know, you get, I, 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 I try my best not to use gematria as a proof, but yeah. plenty of people yeah. do. And the name of the serpent in Genesis is Nahash, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is the same gematria as Messiah yep. or Messiah yep. 358. Yep. So for people who think in those terms, that's confirmation. These are the same entity. This is the same phenomenon happening on, on two levels or, you know. When was, okay, so, so I follow you on that because I, yes, you know, even Mathers talks about this in his book on Kabbalah that he did. So I fall, I just lost my train of thought. They're messing with me. <laughs> the other team. Yes. Okay. So, but, but just to back up a little bit. So let me see if I understand you correctly on this and I, I possibly, I very likely don't, but let me see if I understand you correctly. So. You're, what you're saying is that the Elohim were possibly the planets and that the Elohim were the created the Demiurge. Do I have that right? No. Okay. The, so I think, I think that's safe to say. We don't get that spelled out in the scriptures, but I think with that model, once, once we re-examine what the serpent's saying, he says, you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, if they're going to become as gods, they're going to become as like Yahweh. And what in the Gnostic myths, remember, remember the, the demiurge, Yaldabaoth, is created by Sophia. Yes. And she, has, she is, is embarrassed by him because she, he's lopsided. He's mm -hmm. a monster because mm -hmm. she didn't have logos to participate in this child. So she hides him away both so the gods won't see him, but the consequence is he can't see anyone above him. So he truly believes he's the highest. Oh, interesting. Being. So, so, so basically, uh, okay. So just to extrapolate then, well, well, one first question is, do you identify uh, the Demiurge and Yahweh as the same thing? The Gnostics certainly did. Okay. He, he is the evil Demiurge. Okay. Yaldabaoth is Yahweh. That's right. So therefore then the cure for the tremendous and brutal religious violence currently sweeping our planet is for the Demiurge's mom to come pick him up. <laughs> yep. And just or be at like, least for, okay, at least for time for a nap. Time for a nap. <laughs> he's, not, he's not really in charge. You know? <laughs> that would be they nice. Made, that that would, would be nice. They would affect this by consuming a magic plant. You know, the, the, something that opens their eyes, which I, uh, there's a lot of evidence that even in just the reading, you know, when it, it says the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it doesn't actually say that. It says the timber, that they're timbers. And when you read it closely that way, both timbers could come from the same tree. It's the timber of it that gives life and another timber that gives knowledge. So all of it becomes suspect under those 
those terms, you know? Yeah. So we, we began this by, by, I was asking you, why was Christianity seen as an invasive religion? And so I, I've read some stuff from the, this, I don't know if it's this time period or not, but kind of, you know, the more her, you just as a not historic, historical accuracy, but just a blanket term, the, the more hermetic thinkers at the time, I think essentially saw Christianity as a religion for not particularly intelligent people. Right. That's right. It's just like, yeah. okay, like it's you just not believe, philosophical. There, there's no, and, and that despite, you know, attempts by, you know, Aquinas or, or, or whatever, uh, Christianity doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes, a, it has its own logic uh, yeah. in, in, it, it makes emotional sense. It has deep emotional resonance, but it's not intellectually satisfying and it's mostly confusing. And I think a big part of that is possibly from what you're saying, just like translation issues and things getting copied, copied over, over history. And, and then like things getting slammed together. Like you're talking about the first two chapters of Genesis are different stories. Well, it's like, you know, the book of revelation. And as I point out in that John D book, like the book of revelation is from a, is a, from a totally different group of people than, uh, you know, Corinthians and all of that. And these things are just kind of like uncomfortably slammed together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you consider speaking to why they would have so vehemently rejected Christianity as a new movement, because there were new sects popping up all the time. Well, Christianity is odd when compared to the previous Greek religion, because A, it confirms it, and B, it overturns it. And what I mean by this is, according to the creed in both Catholicism and Orthodoxy, after Christ was crucified, he descended into Hades, and he releases the saints, because prior to that, all the saints are in Hades. You know, after the Christian movement, Hades becomes hell where the sinners go. Well, in the Greek model, heaven would be the equivalent of Mount Olympus. Hades would be where all the dead people go. So dead, dead people do not go to Mount Olympus. It, so sound, it sounds like that necessarily did not have a negative connotation. Hades, like in the sense that it, hell would. Okay, it, great. Okay. It might not have been yeah. preferable, but it wasn't a punishment by any means. Okay. Now there was a place of punishment in Hades, which is Tartarus, but that's created for the Titans. <laughs> so when Christ descends to the underworld, A, he confirms it. He's confirming the Greek Greek conception that there is a Hades down there, but B, he overturns it by A, letting people out, which they don't get but, out. But, so basically you're saying that Jesus evicts everyone, evicts all the Greeks from Hades in order to turn it into a torture chamber? And then offers them a place in his father's mansion, which has many houses, which is Olympus. So that, that, that sounds like a pretty good gentrification plan, but it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll totally give you a spot over there. But that's crazy it's like okay so so i mean it's like so christ takes the saints out of hell and then turns it into guantanamo bay yep what yep. and then lets <laughs> the saints up up where men have never been allowed which is where the gods live <clears throat> nutty mm -hmm. so you see how he confirms it he's confirming it by going there I mean, it's not like hell or Hades was created the minute Christ went there. So, so that is that reading is particularly disturbing because it, it 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 implies that Christ created hell, or more metaphorically, that it was Christianity that brought us this 
conception of a Guantanamo Bay afterlife that has successively traumatized every generation since at an unbelievably deep level. Yep, it is the it's the the ugly child of Christianity, the notion of a a hell as punishment. But here you're saying because obviously people will say, well, well, Christ doesn't say anything about that. Christ is love. This was all later. This is social control put in by the church. But basically you're saying like, yeah, it was this way from the get, right? It was like Christ was the architect of this, at least in this reading, right? Well, the whole, the whole reason for Christ incarnating and dying <clears throat> is to conquer death. By conquering hell, by conquering Hades, the Christians believe they're conquering death. So in, in the Orthodox model, Adam is created divine, <clears throat> but when he sins, he steps outside of the divine model. And the, the only way to have immortality is to be in line with the only immortal thing, which is God. So Christ, in, in the way they think about it, because you know, you hear Protestants say, Oh, Christ died for our sins. That's uh -huh. not what it, that's not what they're talking about. Okay. Christ comes to bring immortality back into the lineage of men by incarnating and then conquering death. Explain explain that more. Explain talk about that more because I, I don't know if I fully understand that. So by Adam's sin, he pulls all of humanity, all of his progeny are now out of line with divinity and thus have, do not have a share. Adam, in Adam, from Gen Adam from Genesis as in Adam. And right. Eve. Okay. And so Christ is the Christian solution to this by incarnating by the divine becoming a man. He introduces immortality back into the lineage of men. Okay. Adam Got it. pulled okay. them out of. And then by further being crucified and rising, he conquers death. And once it's conquered, it's conquered for everyone because now we're back in line. We, we, have, okay. we have immortality again. So, so now, why then create an eternal hell? That's worse. <laughs> That's worse I, I, than death. It's, it's not eternal. It's not an eternal hell in the Bible except later. You know, early on, it's just that he's going to Hades and letting people out. You know, the, the notion that hell is a place for torture, that's post-Christ's lifetime. Oh, okay. So I, I, mis I misunderstood you then because I thought you were saying that like he, he basically evicts the people from Hades to create hell. It, it, as a consequence, it does. But this is a later, this is a, this is a later reading. Yes, that's that's, okay, that's, okay. that's brought in by the followers of this first group of Christians. Interesting. And so then what was their conception of hell? The, the Greek conception? Well, you're talking about the, the, you know, these early Christians. So they're It would have been identical to the Greek conception. So hell, Hades originally, Hades goes back to an older picture of the soul. So in like Homeric times, for instance, the soul wasn't seen as the locus of the individual, wasn't seen as the locus of one's thoughts and feelings and personality. It was seen as an echo, a shade that was less you than you were when you were alive. Well, in and around the time of Plato, the conception of the soul changes and it becomes the locus of the individual and the body becomes this thing it sets aside eventually. So in the old Greek model, and this is before Plato, Hades is filled with 
very quiet shades of each person that are less themselves than they were when they were alive. Now, equally before Christianity, because Plato's earlier, but by the time Plato comes along, number one, Hades gets allegorized in Plato. For Plato, the descent into Hades was our descent into a body. We're already in Hades and Plato. But for those who still believed in a Hades, the soul has now changed to the absolute self and the, the body, the thing to be discarded that's not important. It's the quiet echo in the shade. So once that change is made, I think the entire notion of one's true self being trapped somewhere with no light, because, you know, it's we, we have a concept from of hell from later Christians as hellfire you know, damnation, burning. Yeah, yeah, It's not like that in the early model. Now, there is a river of fire in hell. There are four rivers. One of them is fire, but hell's not full of fire. It's full of cold, dank, dark mud. And according to some philosophers, feces, like it's the low bottom of the retort. If you think of it in alchemical terms, when we distill all of a substance, the stuff that's left at the bottom that that that's hell that's you know which is even called feces even in alchemy so so the implication being that just you you couldn't make the cut like you're the you're you did not become immortal you know it's like you're the low you're you're still at the lowest level right am i right, right in that okay you're still immortal because the soul is immortal the the question is do i get to go to olympus and be a god basically and did they did the early christians have exit con conditions on this or was it considered to be exit conditions from hell or was it considered to be forever well here's something interesting orthodoxy especially in its early days has a doctrine called apocatastasis apo means not to not do kata from catabatic catabasis to go down and stasis to stay there so, apocatastasis means you don't go to hell and stay there. And the reason this has to be true for the early Christians is because Christ's action on the cross is absolute. There can be no remainder. It's a God, right? If So, that means if, if after that formula, if there's any remainder, anyone, even Lucifer, left in hell at the end, Christ didn't really accomplish what he came here to do. So, for the early Orthodox, even if you go to hell, you don't stay there. And you get pictures from some of the saints where they'll say things like, it's a very Buddhist kind of thinking too, they'll say that if you cling to your body and to the senses of this world, you will experience the fires of God that cleanse the dross from us and okay. make us pure as hell. So if you if you cling to the body, okay, that actually makes yes, sense. That will be torturous. That actually makes sense. Yes, that's very satisfying. Unlike you know, you you will go to Guantanamo Bay forever. <laughs> waterboarded eternity. Yeah, I mean, I've actually been waterboarded before. This was actually funnily enough, it was at the same Burning Man. They had Camp Camp X Ray at Burning Man, <laughs> and so I volunteered to be waterboarded. Yeah, don't get waterboarded. It's it's about as awful as it gets. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. As far as I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for orthodoxy, 
mainly the Greek kind, just because the Russian kind has been co-opted as a political tool by Putin. But as far as I'm concerned at this point, I, I, you know, at this point in my knowledge, it's the real Christianity. Uh, and it and, absolutely and is. It, 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 it feels it get, and it, it, it carries gnosis unlike, you know, what Joel, Joel Osteen or something like that, you know? So, yeah, the, 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 the Orthodox model, especially as espoused by people like Gregory of Nyssa, Athanasius, especially Dionysius, the Areopagite, whom some scholars believe was actually the, the project of Damascus, a Neoplatonic philosopher that wanted to make a statement that wouldn't be destroyed by the time the Christians took over and it survived in the form of this, this figure, this Dionysius, the Areopagite. If you read his mystical theology, it is some of the most incredible spiritual literature I've ever encountered. Really? Okay. It, it's, 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 he really, really is able to convey something of non-discursivity in writing, which is probably the hardest thing in the world to do, you know? What, what do you, what, what's an example? When you say non-discursivity, what do you mean? Well, he, he, he makes statements using language, which is logical by nature, to convey something of ultimate reality. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, that is the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is all super fascinating. And, and I mean, just to have, you know, the thing about Christianity is it is, it is incoherent in its current form. You know, and and certainly in the American evangelical forum, it is it is unbelievable. It's basically it's one, you know, it basically is our own homegrown Al Qaeda. So, and essentially, what you're saying is like, no, this this stuff actually did all make sense at the beginning. It's just been whatever has happened. Yeah, it's got its own logic, but that immediately, by the time the Catholic Church breaks away in 1054, they make. A number of subtle changes that you know most protestant sects they don't know orthodoxy exists they think catholicism was first yep. you know so these these responses these pro these this protesting of catholicism all the protestant sects see themselves as coming to true worship right they're they're, they're the real christians mm -hmm. and i think the last count there were was it it's something like 40,000 different Protestant sects that exist all yeah. thinking they're the one true Christianity, but they, they have no idea. 40,000? I think it's something like that. I, are, are, I wonder if most of them are in at this point, Latin America and Africa or, or I don't know. That's, that's so much. That's I, okay. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But every one of them with the, this feeling that they're, the true Christianity and never knowing that orthodoxy is a thing. That's even, even yeah. So yeah, my, when I, I actually attended Orthodox church for a year and, and it was a profound experience. And I think that the, I, I think when I was reading about it, the sense that I got, this was in Los Angeles, by the way, and Los Angeles is a fascinating laboratory to observe this because every single religious sect in the world is there. And so you have everything from like storefront, you know, where they have those storefronts where they're doing faith revivals with folding chairs in malls all the way to like full on Orthodox, beautiful cathedrals and things like this. And 
I, I at least what I what I gathered, I don't think orthodoxy was present in Europe at this time, and it didn't really come to the U.S. until like the fifties and sixties, and it was essentially as it still is, primarily for uh, Greek immigrants to maintain a sense of of cohesion, right? The, which the which, which is what most chur most churches and religions are, but but the yeah. earliest Orthodox churches in the United States was in Alaska, and it was. A monastery was established there. That was Russian that Orthodox. Was Russian Orthodox yeah, yeah. is who came there, and and the main there are three main Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches in the U.S., which is the Russian Orthodox. There's Orthodox Church of America, the OCA, and then there's the Archdiocese, which is Greek Orthodox. Yeah. And they're they're all essentially doing the same thing. What changes is, like you just said, uh, Greek Orthodox is mainly for Greek exiles to feel comfortable mm -hmm. going mm -hmm. to a church service. So the, mm -hmm. the services are often done in Greek. And, and in to Greek maintain English. connection to their culture and identity and Greekness right. and all of that. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, man, we've talked about so much stuff. Okay, well, before we move on, like, did we leave any threads hanging from any of that? Because we went all over the place. Sure, it, yeah. It, it, do you remember it? Did we drop any threads there that I've forgotten? I don't I don't think so. We 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 didn't get into discussing the practice of theurgy what they were doing. Okay, let's talk about that then. Okay. So the theory is this model of soul ascent, much like we saw with the early Christians and it's really first spelled out in Porphyry's commentary on Homer on his Odyssey. Well, the practice itself is incredibly elusive. It's never really spelled out in any of these theurgic texts, I mean, Neoplatonic texts, except for one. And it's in a, a six-volume long commentary on Plato's Republic. And in this, there's a section where Socrates, ironically, I believe, he's making a point, but he says, well, we have to get rid of Homer and Hesiod. Because their poems talk about the gods in such a disrespectful way. The gods murder, the gods rape, the gods commit adultery. He says, we can't have the, the, the youth of Athens. Yeah, it always sounds like Real Housewives of Orange County to me when I, when I reread this. I was just, it, it sounds like a reality show, all the drama. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It does. It's very similar to like the, the Orishas, you know, and, and Lukumi. You know, they, 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 they have faults that become an ideal in a way. And th this is part of what, what, when Proclus steps in at this point, he says, you know, we can't do away with Homer and Hesiod because the more repugnant it, the, the story, the, the deeper the mystery is, the more pristine the, the kernel of that hmm. teaching is. Why do you think he said that? But well, you, you can think about in, in tantric okay. teachings where, the highest mysteries are concealed under something that would make, if someone just read it on the surface, would make them turn away from it. So they won't look at it again. You know, things okay. regarding menses and feces. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so the more repugnant, the, the better it protects itself from somebody invading that on account of idle curiosity, yeah, for example. That makes you sense. You really have to dig for it. That makes and sense. As an example for this, he gives, within this commentary on Plato, he gives a short commentary on 
the Iliad, Plato's Iliad. And in it, he uses the scene where Achilles, the, the, the big famous warrior, god-man kind of a figure, his companion is a man named Patroclus. And Patroclus is murdered in the war. And Achilles is overcome with grief. And he lays down <laughs> to get some sleep. And he has a dream that Proclus's soul comes to him. And he says, I'm trapped here in Hades. But if you would just get off your ass and perform my funeral rites, I would be in Elysium. I would be with the other heroes. But as it is, I'm stuck here because of you. And so when he wakes up, Achilles immediately goes to performing this ritual, this big funeral rite that's that has there's games, you know, it becomes basically a festival. And in this, this the the ritual he does, Proclus says that that ritual, if it's done on a living person and not a dead person, that mimics theurgy, that this is theurgy. And what he does is he builds this funeral pyre and before he tries to light it, he can't light it. And so he calls on the the north and the west winds, Zephyros and Boreas. He calls on these two winds to give him some some air so he can light this fire. Well, Proclus explains this as the, these two these prayers have to do with what they call the Okima, which is the soul vehicle, and they're air because of pneuma, right? Winds. Spiritus in Latin, like inspiration or respiration. So these winds correspond to these levels of the soul and the soul vehicle, cleansing them, purging them of any dross that would keep the soul down where it is. And once he gets it lit, he proceeds to sacrifice 12 prisoners of war. And in Plato, this is what Socrates uses an, as an example to say, look at look what he did. You know, this this was a terrible thing. These men were already captured. He didn't have to kill them. And Proclus says, no, he did have to kill them because it's a symbolic act. And these represent the trains of the gods. So in Plato's Phaedrus, he gives the the picture of the soul as a chariot. And this chariot is trying to ascend up to where the gods are, where all 12 gods move in a train, and behind each god, there's another train of all of his followers, all of the people who he is their god. And so the goal is to get up there and get in this train. So those 12 sacrificed prisoners of war represent the, the 12 gods in their train that Patroclus is to join. And the next thing Achilles does is he takes a cratter, which is a mixing bowl. And this is one of the things we saw, for example, in the cave in Porphyry. They were all over the floor. He takes a big mixing bowl, which was used for mixing wine with other drugs. A lot of people say it was to mix with water so that it wouldn't be more intoxicating. That's not the case. We know that that's not the case because there are references to those wines being so potent that they had to be diluted by 20 parts, parts water or they would cause madness or death. So, so that sounds like hallucinogenic uh, wine. Yeah, okay, interesting. So he takes a crater that sounds was Sounds like used. good shit. We gotta get a hold of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and They didn't have distillation, so they couldn't have got it beyond 
12, 13% by regular fermentation. So it, so had, so it had to be something else. Human. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he takes one of these cratters used it at the symposium and he takes a, what's called the double handed cup, the double cup. And this double cup is a specific reference to reference to the, the mysteries of Dionysus, because in the symposium, they would drink on these broad, very shallow cups. And if you spilled some, it was like a, a faux pas, like kind of the goal is to get intoxicated, but still maintain your, your composure, still be able to balance all that wine. Well, in the, the Dionysian mysteries, they use something very different, which was a deep vase like cup with two handles literally for chugging it and and so he's got one of these double cups and he's taking a ladle out with it and pouring it on the fire and dancing i'm I'm just imagining a bunch of greeks standing around yelling chug chug chug." (laughs) yes you know they were (laughs) okay you know they were (laughs) yeah probably Maybe that's well. Wait, now that, that's like Greek. Greek uh, means fraternities now. So it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're Greek, Greek the alphabet. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So Proclus says that this the the crater. He says this rep this represents the anima mundi, the world soul, and the world soul in the Timaeus and Plato is mixed in a crater. So he's making reference to Plato by saying this, and in the Chaldean oracles. Ever since Middle Platonism, Hecate is aligned with the Anima Mundi. She is the world soul. Mm. And in the Chaldean Oracles, she's described as having a hollow in her left flank, basically her vulva. And this is the real origin of the Grail tradition interpreted as the feminine reproductive system. 100%, yeah. And And it says that from this hollow, soul gushes forth that is where we all take our individual soul from. So he says that that this, this crater, represents that, Hecate, the world soul. He calls it the fountain of souls, because remember, it's gushing forth. And each cup that he takes out and pours on the fire represents Patroclus's individual share of soul. So Achilles is essentially creating Patroclus over and over and throwing him into the fire, which immediately turns it into steam. It becomes pneuma. He's turning something gross into something subtle, and it ascends. And he does this all the while making invocations of Patroclus's soul as though he were invoking a god to come and appear before him and go up into the heavens. And he does this all night long until he sees, on the horizon, he sees the morning star. He sees Venus rising. Now, Venus is in the Chaldean system, Ishtar, Inanna. And Inanna... Venus was also, and the morning star were also Lucifer for Blavatsky. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's right. And so, Inanna, in her myth, we see an echo of the same theurgic myth of climbing through the heavens. She descends into Kerr, which is the Chaldean underworld, and she has to pass through seven arches, seven heavens, where at each one she takes off an article of clothing until she arrives in the underworld completely nude. Well, in the Hermetic texts, like for example, in the Poimendres, we have these, the soul has seven tunics on that it acquires as it descends through each of the planetary heavens. So taking these off one by one, 
makes the soul lighter until it can ascend. So Ishtar, Inanna, Venus, is the one planet that is seen by them as being able to get into Hades and get out again. Because unlike the other planets that, that rise in the east, follow the ecliptic, and set in the west, Venus is irregular because it's, it's inside. It's between Earth and the sun. The others are outside. Mm-hmm. So it will rise in the east, but it won't keep going. Then it disappears below the horizon. After a while, it'll rise in the west, but it doesn't keep going. It goes back under the horizon. So Venus is literally able to get into the underworld and back out again. So when when hmm. he sees Venus ascending, well, so, in the so e- that, that's what that means. That that going into the underworld and coming back again is is about the the path the path of Venus in the night sky. Yes. So uh, does that, that mean that is also what they're talking about when they talk about Persephone and and getting the un- going into the underworld? Or uh, I mean, that is the archetypal shamanic quest, you know, and also in Egypt. You think that's but, what they're talking so about? Persephone, but remember, Persephone, if you go to Hades, you can't get back out again. And in the Eleusinian mysteries, where this was the central myth, Persephone had to have, in some versions, Hermes, who is another psychropomp. It's another planet that's on the inside, Mercury, and does the same kind of weird, irregular orbit. Or in some of the other versions of that same myth, it's Hecate. Hecate is who ushers her out of Hades and back to her mother Demeter. So well that my immediate response to that is well if if you said that Hecate is the world's soul, are we actually talking about like something orbiting around the earth? You know, if you have Venus go down and then go around the world and then come up on the other side, well it is in a sense let out by the world soul because it orbits around Earth. Well it it's problematic because Hecate is also the moon. Okay. Right? So what we have is a number of different myths that these these Neoplatonists are making compromises with certain parts of them in order to convey a message that they believe is encoded in it. But at the base of this, you know, we're we're familiar with Hermes as the archetypal psychopomp that guides people in and out of Hades. But for the Chaldeans, Mercury's not the planet that does that. Venus is. Hmm. And so when he looks, when Homer looks to that Venus, the morning star leaving the underworld, that's his signal that Patroclus is leaving the underworld. That Venus has basically escorted him out of Hades, and now he's on his way to Elysium, where the other heroes get to go and the regular people stay in Hades. And when he sees this, he takes it as an indication that the ritual has is completed, it's been successful, he puts the fire out, and he lays down and he goes back to sleep. And, the, and Proclus says, this is an imitation of theurgy. So theurgy in that light becomes essentially a death, a symbolic death of the individual going through it, what's called, Hans Louis called it the rite of elevation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who, who was and Hans Louis? I don't know who that was. Hans Louis, he wrote the first real study. Oh, you can't see it. Kind of. I don't know what it's, it's doing. That Zoom, Zoom is blocking it out. Yeah, it's called Chaldean Oracles and Theurgy. It's the most complete, best treatment of this topic you'll encounter anywhere. Okay. okay. I highly recommend it to both you and your listeners, if you can find it. And what was, um, what was the author's name again? Hans Louis, L-E-W-Y. 
So he he comments on this on this ritual, which I I was so excited to find because my reading I encountered it in Proclus, and I wanted more. You know, I wanted so more to explanation. So when I found this book, which had been out of print forever, and I paid an outrageous price for it, now it's back in print, and you can get it for sixty to eighty bucks, something. But he comments at length on it. He calls it the rite of elevation. So this rite of elevation is the central ritual of initiation and theurgy. And now, the, now remember, we kept relating this back to Eleusis, right? Persephone, that myth. This, this I find very fascinating. The very last priest of Eleusis that put the rites on for thousand people every year was a man named Nestorius. Well, when the Eleusinian mysteries were officially closed by Justinian, I think it was, he had a son, Nestorius had a son named Plutarch of Athens. He turned around and taught all of the Eleusinian mysteries, including how to prepare the kukion, which is associated with, with ergot and in its best analysis, which I consider the best explanation. He teaches all of this to Plutarch of Athens. Plutarch of Athens has a daughter named Asclepigenia. He, in turn, initiates her into this, teaches her how to confer the initiation of the greater mysteries at Eleusis. Well, it was Asclepigenia who taught Proclus and initiated him into theurgy. So theurgy becomes the inheritor of all of that Eleusinian tradition and and it's encoded in a lot of the things they're saying but it also raises the question of you you know there's there's evidence that they were using pharmaca during these rituals and pharmaca ultimately means magical plants where we get our word pharmaceutical in the bible pharmaca is just translated as sorcery but in its earliest usage it meant plants with magical properties okay so we know that the theurgists were using pharmaca. It's mentioned by Iamblichus. He talks about potions, ointments, fumigations. But it raises the question of, were they using kikion? Was that mystery preserved in theurgy? And if so, you know where? That's what I'm working on right now, is combing back through all of this to try and understand where the Cal- where the Eleusinian mystery was concealed in this post-Chaldean theurgic model. Interesting. So in your book, you also you talk about telestike or telestike. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, which uh, you is, will hear it pronounced telestique, telestika, telestiki. It, it just basically implies the perfection of something. Now, in 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 translations and modern translations of this stuff, telestique will be translated as initiation, and it is an initiation. But it's problematic because initiation, by definition, is the beginning of something. You're you're entering something new that you'll eventually reach perfection in. Well, telestique is that perfection in part, not the beginning stages of. So. Telestique is the the perfection of either an individual via this rite 
or it's the perfection of an an object like a statue. So when they are animating statues, for instance, which was a very common practice in theurgy, when they're animating statues, they're quote unquote initiating the statue just like they would a man. What is, what does animating the statue mean? Does that mean just treating it like it was alive, or what does that mean? It well. It doesn't mean that it's mechanical, that it moves on its own. It means anima as soul. So by animating it, they're ensouling the statue. And this is mentioned in the Corpus Hermeticum, this practice. It's also mentioned in Plotinus. Plotinus, he says that that soul is an easy thing to catch, to get a hold of. But he says to do it, you have to have what's called a hypodokin. A hypodokin is a, it means a perfect receptacle for catching it. So like, let's say that Mercury is in a good aspect astrologically. Well, that doesn't mean you automatically benefit from it. You have to have something to catch that, like a talisman, right? Like something to catch that reflection, mirror-like. Well, to to make a proper hypodokin, they take things from all of the kingdoms of nature. So, and and this will make sense to you from Hermetic and Thelemic practices. Every stone, every plant, every color, all of these have correspondences with the gods. Each of them relate to a particular god. And their worldview, there was nothing secular. So, it's not so much that, which is how it's used today a lot of times. It's not a mnemonic, so that whenever you see gold, it reminds you of the sun. Gold is the sun okay. in this in this model. Everything that exists in Ibis is Tahuti, is Thoth. Okay. So they would take Yeah, that's that's that, a very different way of seeing the world. I mean, like that that I mean that sounds like a small thing, but that means that people would be just immersed in symbolic reality all right. the time. And that there there would be no conception of a of a separation between them and the gods. None. Every every movement happens within the gods. Like Thales said, everything is full of the gods. That was his big revelation. Yeah. Or as they that say he, in in the Gnostic Mass, there is no part of me that is not of the gods. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So when they're making a hypodokin, let's say that we're going to make one for Helios. Well, we would take gold from the metal kingdom. We might take sulfur from the mineral kingdom. We might take acacia or heliotrope from the plant kingdom, and we might take a rooster or a lion from the animal kingdom. These, these are then combined into an image, and this is what the Egyptians were doing when they would mummify their pharaohs. They're not just making a mummy to last, to sit around. He becomes an animated statue. That's the opening of the mouth. That is a ritual of statue animation. It's exactly how it's used in the Greek magical papyri, the ceremonies of opening the mouth. Mm. So, isn't that's each, an, is that that's an, is that an Egyptian stuff also? Say again. Like the whole thing about the the, the opening the mouth is that that's an, is that an Egyptian thing as well? It's that's where they yeah the the Egyptians were practicing it. There are Chaldean rituals rituals of, of statue animation. Okay. Very, very prominent in the ancient world, and it exists today in Hindu. Yeah, I mean, you can go to Hindu temple, like you can go to like Hindu temples, and this is actually a really funny, it's funny story. You know, I went all over 
India seeking all of this stuff. And, and then I came back and there was like a, it was like a Hindu temple in a mall right by where I lived, where people were doing all these practices and animating the statues. Like I literally just could have walked down the street, but is, yeah. isn't that what life is like sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's trying too hard, but you, yeah, I mean like uh, that, stuff is, that stuff is all practiced in Hinduism, right? Whether, where they're putting they're, they're, they're in, and I, I suppose it would be considered idol worship by, by Christians. Okay, so let's say somebody now who wants to take a look at the Chaldean, the, the Chaldean oracles and this, this tradition, is this still something that can be operationalized by people now? Absolutely, it is. So talk about that and what that looks like and who's doing that if they are. Oh, I, I know a number of different groups that operate in, in these terms. And I, I know a number of people who have been through the rite of elevation myself included. And it's grueling. I mean, it, it, it's one of the most trying. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, yeah. You're basically, there are lustrations. You're, 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 certain parts of your body are washed off with salt water. There is sulfur burned. So burning sulfur is very common in theurgy. And it's even common in, in the grimoires to ward off negative entities but sulfur is burned <laughs> you're made to lay down as though dead for the entire night and it's only done at certain times of the year and it has to be when venus is the morning star and the in her hermetism it's different and the the timing is given in the discourse on the eighth and the ninth from the nag hammadi text which is a hermetic text but they do it when mercury not venus when mercury is as close to the sun as it can get without being combust. And I believe it has to be under, and combust means disappearing in the light of the sun where it can't be seen, which I think is 15 degrees or something. And it has to be within the sign of Virgo. And that's the only time you can do it. So it's interesting to me that the, the hermetic model is nearly identical all that's changed is hermes this is psychopomp not that is Venus. interesting that's super interesting but I, i'm curious tell us the actual like can you walk us through the tell us the actual story and like what did you see what did you hear what did, like as if we were there mine my, my experience was you, you you can't move you can't you're not allowed to roll over you have to lay as though your body is dead and and if you do move you're told you know stop moving <laughs> there's two two pairs of eyes on you all the time for the whole night so the the ceremony you know it takes five six hours seven hours depending on when you start but you end when venus ascends on the in the east venus can be either the morning star or the evening star so, so, it can so only you were you were laying on the ground in a room watching the sky or something like this not on on, a, on the ground i was on like kind of a a cot like it, it, it sat up on wooden poles and it folded. It's one of, it was, it's like almost like a camping bed is what I was on. Okay. And your okay. body is covered because in the ritual. So in Homer, the first thing all of the people do at Patroclus's funeral is they cut locks of their hair off and throw them on Patroclus's body. So he's covered from the neck down in hair. So part of it is being covered over up to your neck. And this has symbolic import 
in the way that it's explained by later Neoplatonists that so in the Phaedrus, for instance, when the chariot ascends, the whole chariot and the body of the charioteer doesn't get in the highest realms with the gods. Only his head can poke out and see. This is also in the Mithras liturgy, in the Greek magical papyri. Only the head gets into the upper realms. The rest is covered over. So these play into why you're covered hmm. over. Hmm. Okay. And just like I said, there's a, a mixing bowl that's filled with wine that you drunk beforehand. So before you do this ceremony, you partake of some of this wine. You're the only one that does. Nobody else doing the ritual, participating, drinks it. But you drink it to take the essence into you. And what I was using was psilocybin mushroom. Okay, okay. We don't know what they were using, but we know it was something that induced the kind of experience I associate with a good, healthy dose of psilocybin. Sure. And and um, so so what was going on in your mind? As and how long did this last? Like, did you go through? And I, I you must have in a, a super intense internal internal experience. Well, we're told in the Chaldean oracles that we're to project our mind into the intelligible, and in physical space, that's imagined as being beyond the realm of the planets. So you're looking into the distance as far as you can if your eyes are open but even if they're not open you're projecting your consciousness into the realm beyond fate beyond causality and there's a section in the chaldean oracles where it says that you draw in breaths three times take three deep breaths and this is in the the mithras liturgy also and then after the third breath, you see yourself rising up to the level of the gods. So the whole night was spent with me imagining myself higher and higher. I would take small breaks, but I'd pick up where I left off. And you see this in South America with ayahuasca, where they say that, you know, the first time a man takes ayahuasca, the goal is to get yourself into the Milky Way. They literally say that where the Greeks say the souls are. But he says, the first night a man tries ayahuasca, he might get himself halfway there. Huh, the second night, he might get to the planets. Very interesting. Very, very, but the very. Third night, by the third night, he can get into the Milky Way. Th this also reminds me of the rising on the plains thing. Exactly yeah, like that. Yeah. It's exactly like that. Interesting. You're, and you're, you're, you see something similar, too, in, in Libra O. Yeah, where you're getting out into the. Yep, that's what I was talking. That's what that's what I was referencing. Yeah, the riding yeah. on the planes. Yeah, 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 and Libero. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you this was one night, or you repeated it in a series? No, I've only done it once. I don't think I could do it again. So how far? I mean, wait, why? My body was cramping because you know you 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 think you could lay in one spot for several hours, but at night when we sleep, we're constantly turning, yeah. rolling over. Yep. My muscles were, and this goes back to what Crowley said about a sauna. You know, he mm -hmm. said, you can pick the most comfortable position in the world, but after a while, it will become torture. And that's true of this also. You're basically doing, you know, the, the dead man asana, mm -hmm. but your both legs are down. That was torturous. Uh, but I thankfully I'd already had some practice with this sauna. I didn't That's still a lot. I mean, what are we saying? Like six, seven hours here? Yes. That's a lot. Yeah. That is not, probably no, not, healthy. not That's probably not healthy either. No, it was awful. I, yeah. I hurt for days after that. And yeah, you, that's you not can't healthy. Get up to go to the, the bathroom. You have to hold it or just go where you are. Wow. Um, 
because you have it's as though you're Damn. dead. Damn. If you won't play that game with like that's the ritual rule. So if you step outside of that, you're no longer doing the ritual. It's like playing Monopoly. You know, there are rules, and if you don't follow them, you're no longer playing Monopoly. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the ceremony is to lie as though you were dead. So how far up it's, did you get? I blacked out. I mean, I didn't fall asleep, but I did get to a point where I did not exist. I everything was gone. The people weren't around me anymore. I wasn't I didn't have a body. I didn't even have a, a thought. <laughs> I, just, I I think whited out would be a better description because it wasn't like darkness. It was like I was suspended in I don't the feeling was like hairs of light running through my body holding me suspended almost like a an old you've seen a flash bulb of old cameras mm-hmm. looks yeah like of course that little, I'm, little, I'm old enough to remember that actually using them so yeah <laughs> spider webs and filaments it didn't look like that but that was the feeling i i got in my body and it reminded me of when crowley talked about the star sponge vision that's really odd because i was actually thinking about that while you were talking about that and i didn't understand why interesting that's very odd that was the sensation and i don't know when that happened and that remained that stayed until right at the end when i was raised up which that's done in a manner very similar to the master mason degree when you're raised yeah as Hiram abiff it's very similar to that interesting And, they, and then you're conferred yeah. the title of a Bacchus. Plato talked about how the, the 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 most elite philosophers they were they become Bacchus, and this ends with you being named Bacchus. Everybody takes the same name at the end. Interesting. And then so that that's to symbolize that you're now initiate into into the current, or you're you're you you have you're part of it now. So. Other than hurting a lot, what what happened after? Like, did did you feel a distinct change in your life and your consciousness and how you perceive things? Like, what what happened afterwards? You know, I felt like my capacity for learning increased. I already I already did a lot of reading. You know, I, I'm a big reader, but after that experience, it was like I was burning through books. Like I, I, I could, I was just absorbing so much and that, you know, part of what that ritual does again, it's to get you outside of the realm of fate. Well, when you contact your daemon, your, your astrological daemon, it's supposed to confer the same thing. You, it pulls you out of the realm of fate for the rest of your life. If you're not living subject to the astral influences. But I wondered if it was something like that, like, because it's not explicitly stated in this form of the ritual that you're connecting with your daemon, but the results are the same. So I I almost wondered if it was something like acquiring genius, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Socrates said he had a daemonion. Yeah. We think about genius now as being, you know, a savant, but back then it wasn't talked about that way. Genius was basically a spirit that you had or that you acquired. And so, in retrospect, you know, I kind of thought about it in that way because it, it almost felt like I had a, an extra pair of eyes or something. Like I could really burn through these texts and this really is fascinating, man. Felt like I yeah. understood much quicker than 
I would have previously. This is fascinating because it sounds like just like a much more raw form of all the stuff you get in hermeticism as well as academic slow process. It just sounds like this raw primal version of it where it's just like, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Okay. And, and we don't need whether or not the, the Neoplatonists were justified in projecting this into Homer. I think they have reason to project it into Homer. Those texts, those, especially those portions are so utterly strange and just they tickle something when you're reading them. But let's say that they're correct, that this was really going on in Homer. That means that this is the the oldest ritual in history, you know, because prior to that is prehistory. We don't know. We can we can look at modern shamanic tribes and surmise that at that level of development, they were probably doing something like this. But if they're correct, this is the oldest initiatory ritual in history. Hmm. So if we were to take a step back and just look at it from a purely materialist perspective, you're getting into an altered state by not moving for six, seven hours while on psychedelics. But then there is a, an impetus where you're trying to get out of the solar system mm-hmm. is, is, is your intention. If we want to put you're this envisioning in yourself moving up to the Milky Way. So if we want to put it in like modern vulgar language, it's your intention. You're, you're setting your intention to get out of Milky Way. That's right. Well, while someone circumambulates you all night, there's a fire that's it can be either behind your head or behind your feet. The fire becomes the center and the circumambulation happens around that. So you're in the Western quarter for, for death, for where the sun sets. And this person is circumambulating all night long, pouring one cup at a time of this wine on this fire and calling out to your soul. You know, they're saying things like, I'm, I'm talking to P.D. Newman soul right now and we didn't use pd newman we, we had ascertained the name of my daemon and using different astrological techniques you can find but we called on that name to to carry me to take my soul up into the the noetic realms you know it's that kind of a scenario so i, I would Hazard, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would hazard a guess that you've probably done psilocybin a lot or several times before this experience. Hundreds. Okay, so so there was something tangibly completely different about this. Yeah, yeah. I think the even at, at Harvard, you know what what Leary and Alpert and those guys what they brought to the table was that set and setting changes yeah. the yeah. effects of yeah set and setting i.e. i.e. magic. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. right. Ritual. Right. All that exactly. said yeah, is just a, a clinical way to say what the ritual you do changes the effects of it. 100%. And it, it absolutely 100%. Was different than my my previous experiences. I mean, that sounds for lack of a better way of putting it real. Right. It's I mean, you could not you could not not have an experience. Right. I mean, that sounds more and and frankly, that sounds, first of all, you know, more ideologically consistent with my own interests, but also much more profound and intense than like a group ayahuasca session with a bunch of hippies. I agree. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's Nothing a against hippies, yeah. but you know, it's like, 
it's like but now well now ayahuasca you're sitting around with tech pros looking for ideas for their new app so this this <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> man so okay but so ideally people would do this ritual multiple times we don't know that okay. we know that it was the central rite of theurgy whether it was done as a one-time thing or done repeatedly it doesn't read that way it doesn't give us any clues okay. now the best the best clue we have <laughs> is because Yamblichus and Proclus they talk about epistrophe and pruodos the return and the the descent going up and down and doing this over and over to bring back the divine energia and essence back down here to the lowest part of creation because man is is perceived at being at the bottom of this chain of of pure souls heroes daemons angulos yomblicus gives a whole web of this chain of being in its hierarchy man the position he occupies is it's essential that he go up and back down over and over whether that return is happening from the right of elevation we don't have any indication of i can't imagine anybody doing that regularly yeah it, yeah it also reminds me of you know the you know it's it's uh, many people have speculated that the the pyramids the egyptian pyramids were actually initiation chambers and there there's a classic just form of initiation that is across all cultures and people can do themselves they if they want which is just being in the dark for three days by yourself mm -hmm. that you get something similar in aa with the that's correct yeah the ceremony that's a attached to the zelator uh, initiation zelator. that's correct yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> liber cadaverous i think mm -hmm. okay sorry have, have you read frater shiva's book inside yes. Lodge? oh yeah yeah for sure absolutely that that that's a gnosis hiding for in plain sight absolutely i've the, read that the, book the group that is attacking them trying to run their bookstore out of town he told me in a private communication that that was the church of scientology yeah that, that makes sense i'd yeah. i'd love to have him on the podcast if he's still around yeah he it, is. it sounds he, like he, he sounds like you know him yeah i would love i would love to have him on the podcast okay i'll reach out to him and right. see if he'd be interested in coming on he, yeah because his his books are he just gives you the straight he just gives it to you inside solar lodge was like an adventure it's phenomenal that but you've read his like his instructional ones as well as well right for i've got that one there was the not one. the peyote one but there was he did i think two or three basically books on working the thalemic system as he sees it i haven't read those those are awesome yeah i mean let me see if i can see I think one is he he one is like about the passage to Heliopolis. Okay. Bla oh yeah, Blazing Diamond is the one and then there's one called The City of the Sun. All right. Are they on his his Lulu? They're on Amazon. Okay. Uh and I'm sure on his Lulu. Yeah, you got to get those. Those are those are phenomenal. Yeah, those are phenomenal. Well, thank you. He's really interesting cuz he kind of like he he first of all you can't say that they didn't operationalize that stuff in a way that very, very, very few people ever have. But also, you know, they really combine 
whether this is good or bad, I don't know. They, they do a lot of combining of Dilemma with like Alice Bailey and things like that, which I, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. The Alice Bailey, you know, she's a fascinating character. And there's one thing that she said, well, that DK, Dual Cool says that she records that the, the secret, the mystery can be learned of all of this stuff through two numbers, 14 and 17. She gives no explanation for that, but okay. <laughs> but I immediately, my mind goes to tarot cards, but she never mentions tarot anywhere else. So why would it be tarot cards? But looked at in terms of tarot cards, the implications of that, if that's the solution, is very much in line with Western magical models. How so? Well, 17 is the star card. 14 is the temperance card. Well, these Yetzeratic correspondence of temperance is Sagittarius. And the star card, depending on whose interpretation you read, but I think the most likely is that it contains the constellation of Canis Major, and the big star is Sirius. And Sagittarius if you look to Sagittarius, you're looking to the galactic center. The, the black hole that's at the center of our galaxy hmm. is in the direction of Sagittarius, whereas Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. So you've got this vacuum next to fullness, you know, nothing in fullness. Interesting. I, yeah, I was reading recently that apparently Alice Bailey was a hardcore hardcore into like the, the world socialist movement and a lot of what she wrote was specifically to spread socialism under the guise of the new age which was pretty successful if you think about it in terms of the, the idea we're all one we're all, like all this stuff that was pretty sinister i was like oh, yeah i forget where i read that i think there, there a book came out about that um, she has a temple in the un i believe yeah she does the lucis trust i've also been to there's a, a meditation mountain in um in Ohio, that I've been to, they, they run. This is it's a heavy vibe, or not heavy, but I, very I was high in the vibe. Trust stuff. When I was a teenager, um, I pretty much got out of that by the time I was twenty, twenty-one. What What was your experience with that? That it was that it was a waste of time. All it okay. is is you're reading Bailey's works and doing these triads. You're you're set up with two other people somewhere and you three form this triangle on the map and you coordinate your meditations and the higher you go in the system your meditation changes you're given different things to focus on but the the point is you're creating these triads that triangulate on that space is your space and they've got the whole globe is basically mapped out with triads meditating at certain times and is are what they trying to take over the world i mean like what what, what that's what absolutely the goal to change the world and to bring okay come sat kumara who, who oh, the, jesus <laughs> yeah not not my thing the uh, is, 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 is it's 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 a cult it sounds like a cult definitely a cult why are they in the un because i forgot about that is just so bizarre like why are they in the un well, I think it has a lot to do with uniting everyone into one thing. 
Okay, you so know, basically, exactly we, what the Christians fear—that the, the right. new world order. I know that's the thing. That's the thing about like I always call this Jack Chico vision, but it's like it's like the, the Christians are like you know evangelicals. They get like really hyperactive, like they get really worked up about stuff. But like usually they're they're they, they are often perceiving the kernel of something real. You know, not always, but you know, I mean, then when they get into QAnon, it's just so ridiculous. Oh my god! But. You know, it's kind of like it's it's not, for instance, it's not like people in California are not dancing around in the woods, worshiping Satan and being less, you know, practicing, you know, being non non heterosexual and all of this stuff. So, um, yeah, that's absolutely happening. But. That is bizarre. OK, so basically what you're saying is you have the loosest trust, which is this new age and and unabashedly Luciferian organization, which at least seems to me is a cover for world socialism the international communist conspiracy with a meditation room in the united nations that's right yeah. the fuck and do people use the meditation room i've never been there yeah um, yeah interesting the un's a weird a weird thing very weird it's it seems like they've provided all the fodder the conspiracy theorists need and they're just not running with it Oh, you mean just they're too lazy to wait, the wait, the conspiracy theorists or the UN? I thought like, I thought you were saying like the, the U. Oh, I the thought you were saying like the, like the UN was like, like just being lazy at taking over the world or something like that. I don't, the, yeah, I've been watching a lot of UN stuff right recently just because I was watching the hearings on, on Israel and Gaza and yeah, I don't really, yes, I don't really get the sen sense that the UN is, but, but then we just had this, not, we shouldn't get into this, but the whole thing with UNRWA and, and, and the UN has been in the headlines a lot. But yeah, that is bizarre. Do they, do they have any other religious things in there? Like, do they have something for every, you know, for world religions or something? That or was not, that was not the impression I got that there's, there's one meditation room and it was funded and built by the arcane school, Lucius trust, which is a front for <laughs> potentially the yeah, international Lucius communist conspiracy. Lucius means yeah. Lucifer. Right. Wow. With, with, okay. With, and that's it's ironic because you've got that socialist leaning with very blatant racist Wait, concepts really? of races. Oh, yeah. like she gets into root races and all that. Yes. So yes. what's the deal with that? Well, you know, Pascal Beverly Randolph. He had a similar belief. He was he was African American, but. When he talked about the races of men, he put African Americans low on it, and he 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 gets into this because he ascribes to this idea that the soul is so it. All, all I heard was the soul that you dropped out again. All I heard was the soul is the soul spins off of the central sun, the monad, and goes to the furthest reaches of creation, and it incarnates there as a mineral. Well, once you've evolved through all the different minerals, because they're in a hierarchy, you become a metal, and then you become a plant. I, I think I see where this is going. Yeah. And when you become a man, you have to go through the hierarchy of races. And once you finish that, you get to incarnate to the next thing. But that hierarchy of races is, is it established exactly how you would think it would look for someone who thought like that. Right. Yeah. That's... um. We would, I guess, call that internalized racism now, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah and, and but, so they still have these beliefs and they're sitting in the UN? 
Yes. I mean, what they're, still, the they're still in the books. They didn't edit it out of the books. What the and, fuck? Like, excuse my language, but what? Like, and this has always been my reaction to this. It seems counterintuitive to socialism, doesn't it? It just seems sinister as fuck. <laughs> like, whatever it is. <laughs> oh, man. Well, on that note, we have come to the end of our time for this session. Um, that was an awesome conversation. Thank you very much. I would love to have you back on the show because we covered, I feel like we covered, so, that was an ultra dense, info dense conversation. And, and we have a lot of uh, shared language, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I've been a fan of your work since I read your book on John D, which I thought was phenomenal and great perspective, especially the way you incorporate it with Joaquin Foire. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Phenomenal. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you invited me on. This has been a Thank lot you. of fun. It has been a lot of fun. All right. So I wish you great luck with your book. It is called Theurgy, Theory and Practice, The Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine by you, P.D. Newman. And people can find it on Amazon, right? I see it's already out. So wonderful talking to you. you really really enjoyed that i definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation meet us at magic.me m-a-g-i-c-k dot m-e my school for magic meditation and mysticism where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self i will see you in class and until next time hang in there <laughs>